1: Diet starts tomorrow with hosts Sammy Sage I'm
2: having a relationship with my pizza
1: And Aileen Drexler
2: I'm gonna make you girls a hump
1: day treat In a world where wellness looks perfect on Instagram
2: Just doing my workout,
1: Tuesday's arms and back But feels anything but in real life Is butter a carb? Yes This is the podcast exploring the emotional side of well-being I would be proud to partake of your pecan pie From people who understand the struggle I am on the
2: third day of my cleanse diet Hello, and welcome back to Diet Starts Tomorrow. I'm Sammy. And today we are joined by a friend of mine, Marissa Kavis. She's a writer and a political consultant. And today we're going to be talking about weight stigma in medicine and some really tough experiences she's been through with self-diagnosis and just dealing with the healthcare system in general. Welcome, Marissa
0: Thanks for having me. I think this is my it's my third batches podcast I've been on. <laughs> yeah, no, I love
2: podcasting with you. You always have a really interesting perspective to bring, and you know, I know we usually talk politics, but you also have had some really you know relevant experiences that I feel like it's important for you know our listeners to get to know, especially when it comes to kind of like advocating for yourself in the healthcare system. So to start out, you know, you have shared publicly, you know, your experiences in the healthcare system and sort of what you've dealt with. So if you want to maybe just kind of give the audience like the summary of what you've what you've been through and then sort of how you've come to diagnose yourself with this latest ailment.
0: Sure. So it actually all started with um, a self-diagnosis of another kind a few years ago. Um, I was having this pounding sound in my ear and it was incessant and it it got it was intermittent and then it got worse and then it wouldn't stop and i it was to the point where i would be going to sleep at night and like i couldn't have any quiet because it was just like this rushing in my ear and a number of doctors i asked about it said you'll just have to live with it i don't know what you're talking about um You know, I went to an ENT and they were like, yeah, I don't know. I've never heard of such a thing before. And I was like, okay, well, I'm not making it up. Um, And through a combination of creative Googling, my dad came across this doctor at uh, Weill Cornell Medical Center in New York who um, wrote about this phenomenon. And I called him and his office said, oh, yeah, it sounds like you have pulsatile tinnitus. And it was the first time that a name had ever been put to it. Um, and it was, uh, it basically means that a vein in my head was partially obstructed and the sound I was hearing was blood pushing through harder through the vein. And then it was hitting near my eardrum. Um, yeah, (laughs) so it's like a very specific thing. And this is what kind of started me on this medical journey of, of figuring out how to, navigate the medical system and how to advocate for what you need. And so because of this diagnosis, I had to get an MRI. And then in that MRI, they happened to see my pituitary gland in in the field of vision. Then I had a pituitary tumor. And uh, from there, kind of set up another chain of events. (laughs) Were those
2: two things related?
0: No, they were absolutely unrelated.
2: Completely unrelated. So if the if your pituitary gland wasn't captured on the MRI, you would have just had a tumor.
0: Yes. And I had um I had or have, I guess I'm I'm technically in remission now. I'm not sure exactly how you say it, but had um a condition called acromegaly, which is an endocrine disorder. And that's what um is causing the pituitary tumor or pituitary tumor causes it either way but anyway um, on average people who have it it takes like 10 to 20 years or something to diagnose because the symptoms of it are very nebulous and it's not something that doctors go looking for so I got very very lucky that it happened to get
2: caught wow because of this sound in your ear
0: yes it was almost like a yeah.
2: warning shot. <laughs> wow. So you had just been dealing with that, like I know you had just finished your anniversary of, you know, that that surgery um, on your pituitary tumor and then you wrote another story about a new self-diagnosis and this one I feel like is particularly relevant because for years doctors had been just telling you to lose weight. Um, and it turns out you had an entirely different issue.
0: Yeah, exactly. I did. Um, So I currently am dealing with uh, four fibroids and um, they are non-cancerous masses that are either within the uterus or surrounding the uterus. And it was only because of the the self-advocacy that I learned during this previous experience that I, I kind of knew how to define to this for myself. Um, just, you know, a little background, I had two neurosurgeries to get my um, pituitary tumor out and I never would have gotten the second one if I hadn't pushed for, for more. Um, I was told, you know, you're going to have to take medication for the rest of your life. None of the medications were working. I was doing injections to myself every day to no avail and I, I just had this belief that there was a better way, that there was a solution. And I found the one doctor in literally the entire world who was able to do it for me. So because of that experience, I felt really empowered to keep looking for answers when things didn't feel right. And so I had this descended lower abdomen for many years. Um, so if people don't know exactly what that means, it's sort of like it's, um, the area below my belly button was protruding, you know, pushing out a little bit. Um, in a way that I personally did not like, um, but even <clears throat> at my my thinnest, you know, and my weight has fluctuated over the years, even at my thinnest, it was still protruding, it was still distending, and I thought it was really strange. And a, doc- a few doctors had commented on in the past, but never um, felt inspired to actually look into it. And it wasn't until I was reading a piece um, by a writer named Yvette Dion. Um, about her own harrowing experience with fibroids and and nearly dying um, that I started to feel the wheels turning. I was like, oh my gosh, like, I, I think I have fibroids. Like, I mm-hmm. think this is me. It was like this real moment of like self-recognition. And so I asked my uh, primary care doctor, can you order me a sonogram to see if if I have fibroids because of the distension and abdomen pain and uh, lower back pain and heavy periods and she said okay sure and i turned out to be right
2: yeah you posted the images on on twitter and i'm like how did someone miss this it's your whole stomach like it's yeah. literally if you want to go check it out on twitter she's at marissa Cabis. you can they're on there and like it literally i'm like how did no one realize this like there's, some, there's nothing more obvious than like, it's very clear.
0: Yeah, it's like the size, it's 17 centimeters wide, and <sighs> they compare it to a five-month pregnancy. So yeah. I've just been carrying this around, and I, and I think it's gotten larger in the last few years, but I, mm. I think I've had this for maybe, I don't know, since I was a teenager, and no one caught it.
2: So you're right, I'm like no gyno no caught it. No, like regular physician caught it. No, no. you went to tons of special. It's kind of wild, but, um. So, you, what exactly are fibroids? Like, in case that anyone's like, oh, this might be me. Like, what are they, and why are they dangerous?
0: So they're non-cancerous masses. They, um, there's really they don't really know where they come from or why people get them, but millions and millions and millions of women have them and don't necessarily realize it because there aren't always symptoms and they can be totally harmless. You can have some, you know, small fibroids and, you know, go about your life and get pregnant and have kids and be totally fine. The problem is, is when they get quite large, or if they're located in a place that's extra sensitive, um, and they obstruct certain functions of your reproductive system. And so for me, I found out subsequently that if I had gotten pregnant before this, and hadn't gotten these out, I would have had to terminate the pregnancy. I would not have been able to have a successful pregnancy.
2: Do you think they would have caught them at that point? like,
0: or? Um, I would have been pregnant already.
2: Right. So, but would they so, know like the reason that this pregnancy isn't viable is because of the fibroids? And then would they be like, oh, we'll take those out for you?
0: I don't think you can take them out while you're pregnant because they're in your uterus. So you have to take out, they essentially have to take out your uterus to to remove it, if, depending on the, the method that they use. But um, uh-huh. the most serious one requires that. And so yeah, you can't do that while you're pregnant.
2: Does this affect fertility like long term? Or are you able to treat it?
0: For me, it won't. Um, This will actually make it a lot easier for me to get pregnant because I don't have this giant thing obstructing my system. Um, And one of the smaller ones is pushing on uh, one of my ovaries Um, and so it's just creating like an obstacle course essentially for a pregnancy. But once this, once they're out, I, I should be good. I mean, I don't know of any other fertility problems that
2: I have. So. Right.
1: Warmer weather is finally back after so many cold months. It's nice to get outside and soak up the sun, but the springtime Have you ever felt that fast fashion ick, but can't always find the super high end stuff? I have a solution for you Newly. Newly has everything you need to bring your closet up to speed for this season without breaking the bank. Free your closet of impulse purchases and skip the buyer's remorse by renting instead. That's N U U L Y dot com, newly with two U's with code DST20. Newly subscription clothing rental. Change your clothes. In the market for investment worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer.
2: Maybe one of the reasons they don't know why fibroids happen is because they happen to women and maybe they just don't like care that much about this very particular female reproductive issue. Well, I think
0: it should be part of preventative care for women. Uh, the way we get pap smears every year, we should be getting intravaginal sonograms because these fibroids are so prevalent and they're not being caught until years after they have formed, and they've already caused a lot of problems. And, you know, until a few years ago, pretty much the only solution was a hysterectomy. Um, so young women were getting them and being told, you have to have a hysterectomy if you want to get rid of them. And that's obviously an impossible thing to tell someone in their you know, 20s or 30s. Um, right. So the technology and the, the surgical abilities have become such a long way that it doesn't become this you know completely life altering procedure but um, you can't take care of them if you don't know that they're there and right. so that's really what I um, has you know come through in this whole experience is that we really need to be checking for them because um, something like 70% of, of women have them at some point
2: That's a crazy statistic so you had probably, experienced symptoms of having this in your uterus before. But, you know, you wrote about in your in your Twitter thread that doctors had just told you to like lose weight throughout the years. Mm -hmm. How what kind of experiences you said your weight had fluctuated? What kind of experiences did you have sort of in that realm of of the system?
0: So I I always I don't want to say struggled with weight, but it was just weight was something that was at the forefront of my mind since I was a young kid. And I'm sure um, many people can relate to the experience of going to the doctor and and the chart. I don't know if you guys have ever talked about the chart um, where it's like the
2: BMI chart um,
0: where it's like your your weight is on one axis and your height is on the other axis and it determines whether you're like normal.
2: Oh, that's the BMI chart. Yeah,
0: yeah. So that haunted me and I was scared to go to the doctor from like a very young age. And so um, this, that obviously preceded any fibroid issues, but I always felt like the doctor was a place that you would go to get judged for your weight um, and not necessarily to help you achieve ultimate
2: health. I thought that as well. (laughs) It's really
0: sad. It's really, really sad. And um, that's a whole other uh, you know, bag of beans, <laughs> but um, yeah. that, that kind of predisposed me to feeling like doctors are judging your weight and they equate health and weight. And so they can't really be trusted to see any other problems because they can't see past your weight. And to be clear, like I, I would say, according to the chart, I was never like so off, off the chart, but you know, it was enough that I, I developed a complex about it for sure. And um, uh, yeah. So then I, I, I noticed this lower abdominal issue and I've kind of pointed it out to primary care physicians in the past. And one of my endocrinologists noticed it, but I really did feel like they just dismissed it and were like, well, you know, looks like you could lose a few pounds and, um, you know, try diet and exercise and, and um, just try to deal with it and, and refusing to take a closer look and say, maybe there's something else going on here. But even more maddening is the fact that it was something really common. You know, with my with my pituitary tumor, there were a lot of really unusual things going on. And so I had to advocate because there were a lot of unknowns. But with something like this, I mean, this, it, it, the doctors I'm seeing now are in awe that it wasn't caught earlier. And I am trying to kind of go back and figure out why.
2: Right. I really think the lesson here is in advocacy. So how did you like get into, I mean, obviously it's a series of actions, but like, how did you actually start advocating for yourself? Like when doctors would shut you down, what did you do?
0: I, I think the first step was just not treating everything doctors say as the word of God. I, mean, I think we're taught to go to the doctor and respect them and, They went to medical school, so they must know what they're talking about. And this is not a screen against doctors. Doctors are amazing, and, and they saved my life. But I think it's important to recognize that doctors are human beings, just like us. And some of them are absolutely incredible at their jobs. Some of them are not as good at their jobs. And it doesn't necessarily have to do with how prestigious the institution is or, or um, you know, where they got their degree. It's, it's really a person by person case, is, and so, case. And so I think it's just sort of reading the room. Like if you feel like a doctor is being straight with you, you know, they probably are. But if there's something that if you have a question that goes off in your mind or something doesn't sound right, it's okay to say, I don't understand. Or um, can I get more clarification on that point? Because it's not like, I think I've learned that we're taught that medicine is this whole other language that we couldn't possibly understand. And so we kind of just have to put our trust into these professionals. But we can understand, you know, we're all a lot more capable than we know. And if someone actually takes the time to explain it, there's no reason that we can't be more involved in our own medical treatment. And so it just started from asking more questions and coming to appointments prepared with questions was also really helpful.
2: How did you get them to do the second surgery, which is like really significant uh, when on your pituitary tumor?
0: So um, none of the treatments were working. Um, My one symptom of acromegaly is that you're, IGF one, which is um, human growth hormone, sort of. It's hard to explain. It's a little, that's a little technical, but um, it's a hormone that's harmful. And in children, it call it causes um, gig- gigantism. You know, mm-hmm. being a giant. For adults, it's a little different, but it causes um, it definitely causes a number of physical symptoms. And my even after my first surgery, some of the tumor was still left. It was too hard to get to it, and I was still having symptoms that were as bad as when the whole thing was in there, because it's very powerful. Um, so I have to say, you know, a huge part of the advocating for myself came from my dad, because he he didn't give up on on this journey, and, and my mom too, but my dad was sort of like the primary researcher of the family. And he he just had this belief, like, the doctors that I was seeing just weren't looking at the whole picture, they weren't staying up on the latest research, and they weren't connecting with colleagues at other offices, at other hospitals to, to see what the possibilities for me are. And you know, the thing is, it's like, they have so many patients, and they can't treat every single patient as the center of the world. So you have to treat yourself as the center of the world, and do absolutely everything you can to get the answers that you deserve. So he, he was researching clinical trials for different treatments um, for acromegaly. And there was a there was one medication that I had wanted to try and my doctors, my current doctors were kind of touting me off of it and I couldn't quite figure out why. And he found this endocrinologist at Stanford in Palo Alto who um, his name kept popping up on all the clinical trials for this drug. And so my dad was like, you know, it's probably worth talking to him. And it was COVID. So telemedicine laws were relaxed. So I was able to just do a consult with him. I went into that thinking, He's going to prescribe me this medication, and I'm going to give it a try and see how it goes. He takes a look at my MRI images, and he said, have you thought about a second surgery? And I was floored because I didn't know that that was possible. That had never been presented to me. And he said, I want to connect you to the surgeon here that I work with. He's the best of the best. And sure enough, the surgeon looked at the images and said, yeah, I think I can do I think I can do another procedure on you. Um, That's how it came to pass.
2: So it was through a different doctor. So like a big part of this is that like getting second, even third opinions.
0: Absolutely. I believe in that so strongly more than ever before. You You don't take your first opinion. You just don't do it. Even if you think you're in the best hands, it's always worth it to get another opinion. And I had two endocrinologists in New York. I had one at Mass General in Boston. So some of the best hospitals in the world. And they were not, I did not feel that they were being proactive with my case. I felt like they were really complacent and they weren't at the forefront of research and they were kind of just resting on their laurels. And that wasn't Um, sufficient for me. And it was sort of like, you know, asking for the manager of the doctor. But it's like the one case where I I think that's okay.
2: (laughs) Yeah, no, this is the time when you should ask for the manager, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Because I mean, clearly, like you, it made a huge difference in your life to do so. But I mean, not everyone obviously has the, you know, the skills that your dad has to have like known where to look. So what does someone do if they just like have no clue where to find research on clinical trials? Like where do you even start?
0: It's, there's no one in road. It's, it's honestly a very opaque world. And I think it's like that on purpose, because I don't think doctors want patients doing their own research, I think they want to leave the research to themselves. But it's just a matter. Of, so for example, with my my current fibroid situation, that was even though I had learned how to advocate for myself, it was a completely new field. And so I didn't have any context in that space. I didn't have I didn't know the lingo, every, you know, specialty has like knowing which specialists do which and, you know, who to talk to and who, and, and what, what makes a good hospital, you know, Mm -hmm. how do you know you're in good hands? And so I, I literally just started Googling, you know, looking for best, um, you know, best gynecologist fibroids, New York city, stuff like that. And then eventually as I was reading more, I kind of narrowed my search into, And I talked to a number of people after I tweeted about it, who reached out and said they'd gone through similar things. And I asked them, is there a specialist that you would recommend I see? Like not just a regular gynecologist, is there someone more specialized? I think finding the the person who's most specialized is so key. Right. Because a lot of times you can be going to someone that's more general and they can say, oh, I'll take care of it. But there could be someone who like their whole life is working on this one thing you know right. and with that was the case with my tumor. I mean my surgeon spent 2 years in in a lab with a cadaver working on the technique to get this surgery done. And so you need to be lucky enough to and I say luck because it really is luck lucky enough to connect with the person who is obsessed with what you have and is doing everything they can to get it done. So it's it's looking at, you know, you can research condition plus clinical trial and find different ones and, and see who's working on them and find their names. I mean, it's, it's like a full-time job. Being a patient is a full-time job and having people on your team is so important. And so I, I never would have been able to do this alone. And it makes me really um, feel for people who are dealing with medical stuff and don't have a big support team because it's very time-consuming.
2: Right. And I mean, all this that goes sort of like assumed is that you have health insurance. And I know you've also posted your hospital bill. I think we talked about this on a past podcast. Like Mm -hmm. just that was a I don't even remember like what was so funny about it. But there were some like really ridiculous things like moving you from one room to the other was like a charge. (laughs) But yeah, I mean, it's really like pretty wild what you've like been through in this in this world. You know, obviously people, you know, there's a difference between like doing your own research on like, you know, this very specific issue you have that doesn't seem to be where, where it doesn't seem like your needs are being met. But where does that sort of like become WebMD, Google paranoia, you know, like, how do you know that you're like looking in the right place towards the right doctors and you're not just like being a hypochondriac, if you will?
0: I've definitely had doctors be like, oh, you have a lot of questions. And I'm like, well, yeah, because this is my life we're talking about. I think it's important to still regard the doctors as the experts. So do your own research, but understand that you may not understand what you're reading. You know, there is a good chance you could be misinterpreting something. You don't understand the lingo. So it's it's important not to jump to conclusions, especially when you're at the beginning of your own research. You know, it's possible that you know, don't, don't expect the worst from your doctors and don't assume that they're not telling you everything. It's okay to do your own research. And I am a big proponent of that, but you're not going to become an expert on your condition in a couple hours of research. So, you know, kind of humble yourself in that way. Um, but I think also when you do bring these questions to a doctor, If they're dismissive of it, that's not a good sign either. I mean, I think the sign of a good doctor is one who understands that patients are scared and that they don't have, they feel like they don't have all the information. And so if they're patient with you and they take the time to walk through these questions you have, if they're, you know, within reason, obviously, that's the sign of a really good doctor because they want to be collaborative with you and they don't want to just tell you what to do. But yeah, I mean it can be really scary to start down a, a Google rabbit hole and then suddenly you think something's much worse. But just from my experience, I really haven't had that actually. Like I've only found it helpful to read, read, read about the condition. I learned so much that way.
2: Well I feel like it's probably been helpful to you because your biggest, you know, the big the worst thing it could be was sort of validated for you. You know. I think a lot of people look and they're like, Oh, I have a brain tumor, but they, you know, they, they don't, you know, and that's what I think is probably, you know, that that's what the patient you want to avoid being, but did you ever experiment with like Eastern medicine or any types of alternative medicine? Like, did you explore those types of doc? I don't want to say doctors or practitioners.
0: I did. Yeah. I, I tried functional medicine and I went to two different functional medicine doctors. One was like an independent practice. One was sort of part of this big group of, of functional medicine doctors who also work with nutritionists and life coaches and, and that whole thing.
2: Um, well, what first, what is functional medicine in case people don't know?
0: It's essentially a marrying of Eastern and Western medicine. They they do regular blood work and they they believe in, in medication and, and that sort of thing. But they also combine it with a lot of supplements and um, different kind of, I mean, everyone's different, but, you know, yoga and breath work and body work. And so it's seeing the larger picture and kind of, you know, they do really detailed blood work to look for different things that that the standard panel won't look for, um, which, which is great. Um, and so I, I don't have anything bad to say about functional medicine. It just turned out that for what I was dealing with, it wasn't going to be the answer. Um, so you know, they, for a while thought, if I went gluten free and dairy free, that that would somehow help the inflammation caused by my increased hormones from my pituitary tumor. And I was so desperate at the time, I was like, yeah, of course, I'll try that. So I did that for probably about four months. And I didn't see any difference in my weight and um, swelling is a, a symptom of, of the increased hormones. My swelling didn't go down. I didn't feel any different. And so I was like, well, this is, I don't like living this way. This, you're not eating gluten and dairy sucks. Yeah. So um, I just, I gave up on it. And I, I felt kind of like, you know, a little bit like I had failed the test in a way, you know, cause I wasn't yeah. like, have the willpower to just keep going and be gluten free and dairy free, but
2: <laughs> it would be. I mean, it would be one thing if it were working. Like, I always, like, I've always said, like, I will not cut out a food group unless it were like for a health reason. And mm-hmm. you know, also, like, if you're saying that you, you know, had challenges with your weight like early on, like, you know, the chart and all that mm-hmm. thing, like, it, it can be, dare I say, triggering to have to go on a diet like this and you know you're not seeing results. It's just a totally, you know
0: and and feeling afraid of food. Um and that that's always my biggest thing. Like I'm my mom is actually an eating disorder therapist and she did an amazing job raising me to have good body image and to have a good relationship with food. So despite struggles, like I would say I have you know pretty pretty healthy regard for things. And so this was actually felt really radical to me, because she was never one of those people who was like, well, why don't you try to cut out carbs this month, you know, and, and see if you feel better. She never said that to me. And right. she actually, from her professional point of view, wasn't thrilled about it either. You know, she she sees treating foods as if they're toxic, unless you have a known allergy. She sees that as, um, like you said, potentially triggering, or it could um, help create, unhealthy relationships with food. So, um, and at the end of the day, when the second surgeon went in, I had one of the most difficult tumors he's ever seen in his whole career. And it took nine hours to remove the tumor. So it's like, you know, part of it is that my experience is dealing with extremes. You know, I had this extreme tumor, I have this extreme fibroid. So Mm -hmm. I don't, I guess I, I try to you know, walk this line of I don't want people to freak out and think that they're a medical mystery, too, and that they're like the one in a million. But you can be like, I have I've proven that you can be that one in a million. And so I don't think it's wrong to question things. Yeah, I mean, it's not it doesn't make you a hypochondriac to be like, I've been having this issue chronically, and um, I want to check it out. I mean, that is your right. It's your body. And you have a right to make sure that everything's okay.
2: Totally. I mean, I look, I think it's kind of a balancing of like knowing you could be the one in a million with that you probably are not. And you want to advocate to yourself for yourself up to the point that I guess maybe like your intuition tells you, you, you should. <music> Where you're you know, original doctors open to the functional medicine piece? Like, did you share with them that you were taking, you know, on this new diet or attempting these new, these new techniques? How did they react to that?
0: They were fine with it, but they weren't looking to really collaborate or to, uh, you know, encourage it necessarily. They were like, okay, cool. You know, do, do what you want if you find that helpful, but they were very dismissive of any alternative approaches. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, they, they, I mean, that's another thing I've learned is how divorced regular medicine is from pretty much everything else from mental health, from, um, from these more functional medicine um, stuff, like your diet and, and everything like that. Um, and they they very much just want to stay in their lane and you know, look at the problem at hand and not really think in a larger context, like what else could be at
2: play here? In what way did you sense that they were not like considering mental health at least? Because like, I, I understand sort of, why they, you know, why a a surgeon at boss at mass general is not going to like think about like Reiki, but it's another story to, you know, think about the chemicals in the brain and think about the way diet and like nutrients are affecting your body. So yeah. I mean, what was your, I guess, experience, like in what ways did they not consider mental health?
0: I think it was even as simple as when they would tell me different information, they, they never thought about the, the mental impact that it would have on me. Like we are talking about fertility. You know, there was a time where they wanted me for my tumor to get um, a radiation treatment that uh, could have potentially disrupted my fertility, which is obviously a huge deal to a woman my age, I'm 34. And they were just like very matter of fact, and didn't really take the time to think about like, this is a person's life, and she's already been through multiple surgeries. And, you know, telling her XYZ is possible. And in such a kind of callous way, it just it, it really um, felt like they weren't seeing me as a full human. And then the, the interesting thing after my latest neurosurgery is that I was struggling mentally, just because the recovery was so steep. And, um, it, when you're in the thick of it, it feels like it's never going to end. And so I was talking to my endocrinologist who, who, you know, to be fair, was wonderful. And he was the one who helped me get the, the surgery in the first place. But I was talking about my mental health and he was like, yeah, I mean, it's possible that you have PTSD.
2: <laughs> I mean, it's definite. Like, come on.
0: <laughs> He's like, yeah, sometimes patients get PTSD from, from surgery, And there's very little discussion about how traumatic surgery is just on its face. No matter if it's a a minor surgery or a nine-hour surgery, um, anesthesia and going into a hospital and being put under and not putting your life completely in someone else's hands is so mentally overwhelming, and so the fact that he was like, oh "You might have PTSD," it's like, "Oh, yeah. okay." <laughs> right.
2: I mean, to me, walking into a hospital is incredibly stressful. So I can't, and I thank God never had to walk into like experience. You know, other than like getting my tonsils out and like a nose job when I was younger, yeah. like, like I never really, you know, I didn't have that kind of thing um, where you are really fearful for your, you know what type of surgery you know, you're know you going to have. And I, yeah, it's literally, I can't even imagine someone who wouldn't be somewhat traumatized by that. Um, yeah. Waking
0: yeah. up from anesthesia, which I've had to do three times surgically and then, you know, I had a colonoscopy and I had my wisdom teeth. So, you know, I've, I've done it a number of times now. It is very hard to explain to people who haven't gone through it before, but you're alone you feel you feel so alone and you have no idea where you are or what's going on and you're at yeah. the mercy of the hospital staff to like cater to your needs and and try to convey what you're feeling when you're like half there and you want um, to throw up
2: immediately that's what i yeah. remember is just wanting to throw up immediately both even when i was like five
0: Yeah. It's terrible. I mean, you just, it's the most disorienting time. And so even just trying to prepare people for that, I feel like it's something that we need to do to say, listen, when you get up from surgery, like you may not, you're going to feel weird and it's okay and you're safe. Um, Mm -hmm. And there's, there's very little talk of just like how to get yourself through mentally. It's all just focused on the physical, but to me, it was both, but the, the physical, the mental component was nearly as challenging as the physical.
2: Absolutely, Come, totally. I just can't even, I can't even imagine. Like it really is so terrifying to have to deal with these things. And I'm really, I'm really sorry that you have because it's harrowing, honestly. Yeah, um, I
0: just, I, I'm ready for a break. <laughs> I'm ready yeah. for a break.
2: <laughs> I hope for that for you too. I really do. We had a few people submit like experiences that they've had where like their doctor told them to lose weight, but it was actually a different thing. So Mm -hmm. I'm going to read some of them just with the hope that if you as a listener are someone who thinks you might have a real medical issue and you're just being kind of told to lose weight, I hope that reading some of these will spur you to get a second or even a third opinion Okay. So the first one, my PCP primary care physician told me to lose weight and ignore my very off blood cell counts. It was lupus. I, I wanted to get laser hair removal and the lady told me it wasn't working that I was still hairy because of my weight. Okay. That's not a doctor, but whatever. (laughs) The next one, I developed psoriasis and my doctor said, if I lose 50 pounds, it would clear up. I don't know how that would work. What? Yeah. (laughs) Well, here, here's a here's a really fucked up one. Was fat changed at the eye doctor because rapid weight gain is causing swelling on my optic nerve. Instead of tests, I was told to just not gain weight because I'll lose my vision. What? Yeah. God. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Here's an, I was 14 and put on diets and other traumatic procedures had missed a seven pound tumor. That was oh, the weight that, that they needed to lose. Right. <laughs> yeah. Here's the last one. Constant vomiting. Because I was fat, had a fatty liver, but really it was gallbladder, and I had to have surgery.
0: I, I, I mean, it's like I wish that I was surprised by any of this, but I've also become like I'm reading more from you know fat activists and and people who research in the space, and I've really been rethinking um, my my relationship to that and sort of the things that I have internalized throughout my life, and um, seeing. Uh, Weight is something that needs to be fixed or something that needs to be cured. And um, really understanding that people come in all different sizes and it's not a measure of health and that we all deserve to have healthcare that treats us as human beings that are okay, just as we are.
2: Yeah. It makes you wonder like, okay, so everyone says, you know, you want to be smaller, thinner for your health but it's like, okay, well, maybe people who are heavier would be just as, maybe they wouldn't necessarily have like higher death rates or worse, like mortality with certain conditions if they were treated the way smaller people are treated. There's Uh, You have to wonder that like how much of it is the weight and how much of it is the treatment they're receiving for their ailments.
0: It's particularly harrowing when you hear about um, women losing pregnancies or having major complications um, because of their weight. Um, I, I remember reading an essay from um, Tressie McMillan-Cotton, who is um, a writer and she's amazing. And she she went through that very thing. Um, she, she lost her um, baby because they just thought she was fat and you know they didn't treat her appropriately you know it's just it sounds like it's a very basic thing but you know fat people deserve health care and um, I you know I I as someone who has struggled with weight um, I don't really know how I classify myself which is like a whole other thing kind of it's like you know where do you fall in like the continuum of weight but I think anyone who is not like um, super thin has at one point or another dealt with a doctor looking at their weight. And instead of digging deeper into what might be going on, they just say, go to the gym and it will clear itself up.
2: Right. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely a very, a very common experience, But thank you so much, Marissa, for sharing all of this with us. You were so open and vulnerable and it was, you know, I mean, I hope that this is helpful for people who maybe have, you know, obviously not the same issue, but something similar or they felt, you know, kind of slighted by doctors not really listening to them. So is it okay if people reach out to you?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I'm at Marissa Cubis on Twitter and on Instagram and happy to help people with their questions about. Navigating this crazy system because there's very little support in that regard, and also just wanted to say that I am getting fibroid surgery next week, and um, hopefully that will resolve the issue. And 2022 will be surgery free. <laughs> I,
2: I mean, I really hope, truly, I hope that that goes well and smoothly, and that you know you wake up non-traumatically in the hospital. I hope so too. <laughs> yeah. And so Marissa's is going to join us on our Thursday episode as well. And we're always with you. three thick and thin. Diet Starts
1: Tomorrow is produced by Sean Kilby and Jorge Morales Pico. Editing by Stacey Wong and Sean Kilby. Social media by Sydney Rafe. Guest booking by Nicole Pellegrino. Be sure to follow at Diet Starts Tomorrow on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And send us your emails to dst at betches.com.
2: Betches.